May we visit the desert now, gentlemen? It's getting pretty late, Doctor. Later than you think. I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the Futus of War. Resistance is futile. Jedi's strength flows from the force, but beware of the dark side. Oh. 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 Iron Man, that's kind of catchy. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello, everybody. What's happening? This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Treks and Sci-Fi, episode 501, for Sunday, August 24th, 2014. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today, I'm going to take a look at the first Big Bug movie. It's Them, from 1954. It stars James Whitmore, Edmund Gwynn, Joan Weldon, and James Arnez. Before I get into this week's podcast, I'd like to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to this movie. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then I'll get into the movie. tell you, gentlemen, science has agreed that unless something is done and done quickly, man, as the dominant species of life on Earth, will be extinct within a year. of the President of the United States. Stay in your homes, I repeat. Stay in your homes. Your personal safety, the safety of the entire city, depends upon your full cooperation with the military authorities. Yes, cities, nations, even civilization itself, threatened with annihilation because in one moment of history-making violence, nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation. But born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous. There is no word to describe them. We may 
may be witnesses to a biblical prophecy come true, and there shall be destruction and darkness come up in creation, and the beast shall reign over the earth. Yes, the earth, the skies above and the seas below, infested by swarms of nightmare creatures, crueler, deadlier than the armored giants of prehistoric eras. Here is a wild, headlong flight into terror as the desert erupts with the grim battle for survival. Here is a fear-frenzied moment of suspense as mankind totters before a thing that multiplies faster than it can be killed. Here is a desperate plunge into the black depths of the earth where human courage challenges the brute force, the slashing jaws, the poison fangs that guard the subterranean nest where the beast spawns its terrible progeny. To all units, to all units, condition red. Drain 267 is the target area. Repeat, condition red. Drain 267 is the target area. Is there any type of gas we could use? No, we can't take a chance. It might poison the whole city. Them was released June 19, 1954. It has a running time of 94 minutes. It was directed by Gordon M. Douglas. He was born Gordon Douglas Brinkner on December 15, 1907 in New York City, New York. He began his career as a child actor. He started working in the office of Howl Roach Studios. He got some bit parts in Howl Roach movies. He would later serve as assistant director on the R Gang comedies. He directed an episode of Our Gang, which would go on to win an Academy Award for live-action short film in 1936. He left Roach Studios in 1942 after the United States Army took over to make wartime training movies. He moved to RKO Radio Pictures, where he directed low-budget movies like Dick Tracy. In 1948, he moved to Columbia Pictures and then Warner Brothers in 1950. Some of his most notable movies are Robin in the Seven Hoods, in Light Flint, The Detective, Tony Rome, Lady in Cement, and They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. His last movie was Viva Knievel in 1977. He passed away September 29, 1993, at the age of 85. Now here's some information on the stars of this movie. Starting at the top, James Whitmore is Sergeant Ben Peterson. He was born James Allen Whitmore, Jr., on October 1, 1921, in White Plains, New York. He attended Amherst Central High School in Snyder, New York, before graduating from the Choate School in Wallingford, Connecticut. He went on to study at Yale, where he was a member of Skull and Bones. He served in the United States Marine Corps during World War II. After World War II, he appeared on Broadway in the role of the sergeant in Command Decision. MGM signed him to a contract. When MGM made Command Decision into a movie, his role was played by Van Johnson. His first major picture for MGM was in Battleground, in a role Spencer Tracy turned down. He would later be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this role. He has been in hundreds of movies and television shows over his nearly 60-year career. Here is a list of some of the movies he's been in. 
the asphalt jungle, the next voice you hear, above and beyond, Kiss Me Kate, Oklahoma, Black Like Me, The Guns of the Magnificent Seven, Planet of the Apes, Torah, 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 Give Em Hell, Harry, and the Shawshank Redemption. For the younger generation, he was the Miracle Grohl commercial spokesperson. He won a Golden Globe Award, an Emmy Award, and nominated for two Academy Awards. He worked well into his 80s. He passed away February 6, 2009, at the age of 87. Next up, Edmund Gwynn. He was Dr. Harold Medford. He was born Edmund John Kellaway in Wandsworth, England on September 26, 1877. He will best be known for his role as Kris Kringle in the 1947 film Miracle on 34th Street, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. He began acting in the theater in 1895. He served in the British Army during World War I. He made the move to film in 1916. He appeared in more than 80 movies, including Pride and Prejudice, Cheers for Miss Bishop, Of Human Bondage, and Keys to the Kingdom. He moved to Hollywood in 1940. He kept busy until the 1950s. He passed away September 6, 1959, at the age of 81. Joan Weldon was Dr. Pat Medford. She was born Joan Louise Weldon in San Francisco, California, on August 5, 1930. She began her career singing in the San Francisco Grand Opera Company Chorus. Later, she would become a contract actor with Warner Brothers, where she remained until her contract ended in 1954. This is her most notable movie. She had a short-lived television career in the 1950s. She resumed her career as a singer in road company productions, including The Music Man and Oklahoma. She retired in 1980. Last but not least, James Arnaz. He was Robert Graham. He was born James King Arnaz in Minneapolis, Minnesota on May 26, 1926. During World War II, he served as a rifleman with the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division. He was seriously injured during Operation Shingle at Anzio, Italy. He was honorably discharged on January 29, 1945. His decorations include the Bronze Star Medal, the Purple Heart, the European African Middle Eastern Campaign Medal, the World War II Victory Medal, and the Combat Infantry Badge. He began his performing career as a radio announcer at a Minneapolis station in 1945. He hitchhiked to Hollywood and soon began to act and appear in films. His film debut was The Farmer's Daughter with Loretta Young. He was close friends with John Wayne and co-starred with him in Big Jim McClain, Hondo, Island in the Sky, and The Sea Chase. John Wayne was rumored to have turned down the role of Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke, but recommended James Arnaz for the role. Gunsmoke made him world famous and would run for two decades, becoming the longest-running drama series in U.S. television history by the end of its run in 1975. He was known for doing westerns, but appeared in two of the best science fiction movies of the 1950s, The Thing from Another World and this movie. After Gunsmoke, he would go on to do western-themed movies and television shows, including How the West Was Won. He passed away June 3rd, 2011 at the age of 88. And that's all I have for movie information. Now let's get into the movie. The movie starts in the New Mexico desert. 
State Troopers Ed Blackburn and Sergeant Ben Peterson find a little girl in shock, wandering in the desert. Hey! Hey, honey! Hey, little girl! Little girl! Wait a minute. What are you doing out here, honey? Honey. What's your name? Who do you belong to? They pick up the little girl and go to investigate the car and trailer. They find the car and trailer off to the side of the road. One side of the trailer is ripped open from the outside. They search the area and find a large, unusual animal footprint on the ground and hear a strange, pulsating, high-pitched noise in the wind. A team of investigators arrive on the scene, and the little girl is taken to the hospital. Ben and Ed decide to go to the general store to talk to the owner to see if he has seen or heard anything. They arrive at the general store to find it wrecked, and its owner has been mysteriously killed. Looks like he was dragged and thrown down What do you make of it? What did you make of the trailer? Yeah. This wasn't pushed in, it was pulled out. Just like at the trailer. Uh-huh. Ben, have a look at this. Sugar. Ed stays behind to guard the store until the investigation team arrives. He hears a strange, pulsing, high-pitched sound and goes outside to investigate. Gunshots are fired, the strange noise grows faster and louder, and Ed's screams are heard. Back at the state patrol headquarters, Ben and his superiors discuss what happened at the trailer site, general store, and what happened to Ed Blackburn. 
And with all this stuff, we only know the car and trailer was owned by a guy named Alan Ellenson from Chicago. Yeah, that's all. Look, Ben, stop blaming yourself for whatever happened to Ed Blackburn. It wasn't your fault. Somebody had to stay at Johnson's place, so it happened to be Ed. Yeah, I know. We'll find out who killed him if he is dead. Along with Gramps and this Ellenson family, so come off it. We'll get a report on the fingerprints sometime this morning. That'll tell us more. Have you figured out what this print is? No. Grace. Kit, run down all Gramps' personal stuff and records. I don't think he had an enemy in the world, but somebody might have... Oh, no, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. If somebody wanted to knock off Gramps, why tear down half the building to do it? Yeah. I put on a call to check all mental institutions. Everything seems to indicate a homicidal maniac. I mean, there's no money stolen, violent wreckage, just sugar taken. That's being checked, but it's a waste of time, too. We'd have been notified if there was a loony killer on the loose. On top of that, Gramps got off four shots from his 30-30 before the killer did this to the gun. And Blackburn was a crack shot. He could hit anything he could see. So unless your maniac was armored like a battleship, there's no maniac in this case. Yeah, you're right. I want every available man scouting the desert. If our two planes aren't enough to cover areas the cars can't reach, well, I'll ask permission from the chief to hire a couple of more. Ben, get yourself something to eat and... And grab some sleep. I don't want you wearing yourself out so that when something happens, you'll fold up on us. I got a little score to settle. We all have. Port from Washington, Captain. All right, thanks. Fingerprints on the trailer check out real good. Mr. Ellenson was an FBI agent on an extended two months vacation with his wife and two children. Call the local FBI office. They've got a stake in this case now. Tell them Mr. Ellenson's vacation looks like it's been extended indefinitely. Upon learning that the owner of the trailer is a vacationing FBI agent, the FBI sends Robert Graham to investigate. Glad to get off that desert. Yeah, sure. Must have been 110 out there today, at least. Yeah. Captain Edwards, this is Robert Graham from the FBI office in Alamogordo. Oh, how are you? How do you do? Sit down. Thank you. Ben here been bringing you up to date in this business? Yes, sir, he has. We went over these exhibits this morning before we left for the desert. I took him out to where we found the trailer in the Johnson store. We've been there all day. Nothing. Got any ideas, Mr. Graham? None that make any sense. I thought you FBI guys were all quiz kids. Solved everything right away. I did, too, when I applied for the job. The planes and the cars haven't found anything yet. Given time, people don't just drop off the face of the earth without leaving a trace. We'll find them. You know what that is? It beats me. Has it been identified yet? No. One of the officers even took it to a friend of his who teaches zoology at the college. He said he'd never seen anything like it. Lots of evidence, loaded with clues, but nothing adds up. Well, that little Ellenson girl is our only real bet. Any news on her? No change. I checked with the hospital half hour ago. Now, Captain, if it's all right with you, I'd like to send this or a copy of it to our bureau in Washington. You know, they just might be able to identify it, or at least prove that it's nothing. It's all right with me. Yeah, come in. Hello, Fred. Hi, Doc. Glad to see you, Ben. Hello, Doc. How are you? You two know each other? No, I don't believe so. Doc Putnam, County Medical Officer, Robert Graham. Sit down, please. Yeah. He's with the FBI, so watch your language. Oh, I will. I finished the autopsy on Graham's Johnson. Do you want a technical or plain? Just plain, Doc. Get to the verb. Well, old man Johnson could have died in any one of five ways. His neck and back were broken. His chest was crushed. 
His skull was fractured, and here's one for Sherlock Holmes. There was enough formic acid in him to kill 20 men. Bob sends a cast of the animal track to the FBI's Washington, D.C. headquarters, and in response, the Department of Agriculture's entomologist, Dr. Harold Medford, and his daughter and fellow scientist, Dr. Patricia Medford, are flown in. Dr. Medford? Huh? Are you Dr. Medford? Mm, yes, yes, yes. No need to shout. Oh, you're the people, of course. Got a message someplace. Said you'd meet us. That's right, sir. Mm. I'm Bob Graham. How'd you do? This is Sergeant Ben Peterson. Hi. Oh, you're the one who found the print. Yeah, that's right. Pat! Pat, hurry up. I'm caught. Can I help? No, thank you. I think I can manage it. This is the other Dr. Medford gentleman, my daughter Patricia. Pat, this is the man who found the print, Sergeant um, uh, Ben Peterson, miss. How do you do? Well, then you must be Mr. Robert Graham. Yes, ma'am, how do you do? Hello there. We've got a car waiting, we can take you to a hotel. Ah, huh? the hotel can wait, we've got work to do. Come on, I want to read all your reports right away. Come on, Pat. Excuse me, Pat. Should have this suit pressed. He's quite a doctor, huh? Yeah, she's the kind that takes care of sick people. I think I'll get a fever real quick. <laughs> Ben and Bob take the two doctors to the hospital to examine the little girl. She is still traumatized and uncommunicative until Dr. Medford uncaps a bottle of formic acid under her nose. You were saying? As I explained to Mrs. Johnson, the little girl's aunt, we hesitated using a curare to diminish the muscular spasms because she's too young. Mm. Narcosynthesis would be a useless procedure until we've overcome the condition of aphonia. What's aphonia? Loss of voice. She's a classic case of hysteria conversion. Only a severe catharsis could jolt her at all. And May I have a small glass, Doctor? Oh, yes, certainly. Pat, that acid we got? Acid? Formic, Doctor. Thank you. It may provide the jolt you need. Later than you think. Ben and Bob and the two doctors head for the side of the trailer. Dr. Harold has a frightening theory, but withholds it until later confirmed by the appearance of a nine-foot ant at the trailer site. By ordering Ben and Bob to shoot the creature's antenna, Harold saves the group from its attack, and the creature is killed. Harold then explains that it was a descendant of an ant that was present when the first atomic bomb was tested in the desert in 1945 mutated each generation by lingering radiation. What is it? Species appears to be Campanotus fecinus. One of the family Formicidae. An ant. An ant? I don't believe it. It's not possible. Then this is what got at Blackburn and Gramps Johnson in arrest? Yes. A fantastic mutation. Probably caused by lingering radiation from the first atomic bomb. Notice its odor? Yeah. Formic acid? Well, then that's why that little girl reacted so violently. And the coroner's report said that Gramps was filled with the stuff. See that? It's the stinger. Ants use their mandibles to rend, tear, and hold their victims, but they kill with that by injecting formic acid. 
Mr. Johnson was stung to death. There's no time to lose. We must find the colony, the nest. You mean there's more of them? This was probably just a scout foraging for food. You heard the sound. The stridulation. It communicated with others in the colony. Communicate? You mean these things sent messages? Of course. All insects have means of communication with their own kind. be witnesses to a biblical prophecy come true and there shall be destruction and darkness come up in creation and the beasts shall reign over the earth with the help of brigadier general o'brien and major kibby an aerial search of the desert for the creature's nest is started when the nest is found it is torched with phosphorus shells and its tunnels gassed with cyanide bombs to determine if all the ants are killed Bob, Ben, and Pat gear up and enter the nest, repelling through the tunnels hundreds of feet into the earth. After passing many gigantic dead ants, they reach the queen ant's chamber. Seeing that two queen ants have hatched, Pat anxiously orders everything be burned. Back on the surface, Dr. Harold and Pat announce that the problem is not over, as two queen ants appear to have hatched and escaped the nest before it was destroyed, and now will mate and start other nests. Very strange. Most unusual. There were no larvae or pupae in the egg chamber. They all seemed to hatch directly from the eggs. I attribute it to part of the whole mutation process. Yes, that's the logical conclusion. And you feel sure these two have gone? You found no wing dance in the nest anywhere? We saw only worker ants. I don't get it. You two act like it was the end of the world. Well, it could be. These two empty egg cases contain queen ants. You see, newborn queen ants have wings. So have their consorts, male ants. You found no ants with wings? Not a one. But the brutal fact is we didn't destroy this first nest soon enough. No. Two young queen ants hatched out, dried their wings and flew away. Each with one or more winged males. They're gone on their wedding flight. We needn't worry about the males because they'll die very quickly. But the queens... Doctor, are you telling us there are going to be other nests? A single queen is capable of laying thousands of eggs. From these will hatch dozens of other queens who may, in turn... How far can they fly? Hmm? What, these giants? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Ordinary queens of the smallest species have very limited flying powers. They're dependent mostly on winds and thermal currents to carry them along. They have been found in the stratosphere. But these giants... I don't know. You guess. And I thought today was the end of them. No. We haven't seen the end of them. We've only had a close view of the beginning of what may be the end of us. In a top-secret conference, the Doctors Medford, Bob, Ben, Major Kibbe, and General Bryan meet with Washington officials. After showing film footage demonstrating the strength, ferocity, and mating habits of ants, Harold predicts that humans will be extinct within a year if the queen ants are not destroyed. Ants are the only creatures on Earth, other than man, who make war. They campaign. They are chronic aggressors. And they make slave laborers of the captives they don't kill. None of the ants previously seen by man were more than an inch in length, most considerably under that size. But even the most minute of them have an instinct and talent for industry, social organization, 
and savagery that makes man look feeble by comparison. Uh, how large were the ants you found? Oh, the smallest measured nine feet in body length. That, gentlemen, is why you are here, to consider this problem. And I hope solve it, because unless you solve it, unless these queens are located and destroyed before they've established thriving colonies and can produce, heaven alone knows how many more queen ants, man, as the dominant species of life on Earth, will probably be extinct within a year, Doctor. Secrecy is maintained to avoid worldwide panic, but the news is monitored for unusual sightings, and mysterious disappearances or deaths. Pat and Bob go to Texas to check out a story about ant-shaped flying saucers reported by a Texas ranch foreman, Al Crody. They ain't kidding me. Nobody's kidding me. Not you, not nobody. This is no hospital. This is a loony bin, a nut house. You think I'm crazy? Well, I don't care what you think, I'm not. I saw those things with my own two eyes. You think anybody could make up a story like that? A guy'd have to be nuts to make... I mean... Look, you're a flyer. You didn't get that yard goods on your chest sitting on the ground. You've seen guys blow their stacks, haven't you? You think I act and talk like a guy who's lost his marbles? No. Won't you please tell us what you saw, Mr. Grody? I've already told those head-shrinking doctors four dozen times. I'm sick of telling it. I tell them I get laughed at or clucked over or clucked over or laughed at. You promise not to laugh at me? Promise. Okay. I was... Flying south from Corpus Christi, heading here, Brownsville. I turned in from the Gulf, heading for the airport about 20 miles out. And all of a sudden, I see these, these flying saucers, three of them, one big one and two little ones. I had to do some fancy flying or they'd have run right into me. I went into a dive and I lost them and I, I sat down in the first place I saw, so it was a street. I'd never been so rattled in my life. I cracked up a little short. I plowed into an old Ford and ended up on somebody's front porch. But who wouldn't lose their head a little after seeing something like that? They were flying saucers? Well, I don't know what else to call them. They were shaped like, well, like ants. I know that sounds crazy, but that's what they were shaped like. The big one was maybe 15 feet long and had wings like a fly or something. And the other two seemed to be chasing the big one. And one here and two here, and they were zooming around like regular kamikazes. Like scared me out of my pants. Excuse me, ma'am. It ain't as if that Ford was a brand new one. It was beat up to begin with. So what's all the beef? You don't believe me either, do you? On the contrary, we do. You do? Good. Listen, ma'am, when you what get on the outside... What direction were these... Uh... Flying saucers going the last time you saw them. West, I'd say. Yeah, due west. Hey, will you all get me out of here? We'll speak to the doctor about it. I sure would appreciate it. Try and get my clothes, too. They wouldn't give me nothing but these slippers. Wouldn't even give me a rope to hold up my pants with. We'll be seeing you. Be right neighborly if you could help. I'll sure be hoping. Sure. Well, Mr. Graham. Yes. Tell me. How was your talk with Mr. Crotty? Well, I think you're wise to keep him locked up, Doctor. I've recommended his release. He's not demented. I'm convinced he's trying to pull a publicity stunt with this weird story. Well, that's why your government would appreciate it if you kept him here, so he doesn't get any publicity. The government? 
He's to have absolutely no visitors. And if any information is given out about him, Washington will hold you responsible, Doctor. I'm sorry I can't tell you why this is essential. We'll let you know as soon as possible. We'll send you a wire and tell you when he's well. The doctors Bedford and their colleagues are disturbed by reports that a ship on its way from Mexico to Singapore became infested with giant ants that killed all hands. I'm sure you gentlemen will be interested in this report I just received. USS Milwaukee able to get radio bearing on SS Viking before signal stopped. Milwaukee proceeded at once to location. Two seamen from Viking rescued from sea by Milwaukee. Seamen positive, no survivors remained aboard Viking. Not possible to put aboard search and rescue party as Viking was infested with the giant ants. Upon my orders, the SS Viking has been sunk with naval gunfire. This was accomplished at 0700 hours this morning. But I don't see how a ship at sea could... Dr. Bedford, hmm? how could these giant creatures get aboard that vessel without being seen? The SS Viking anchored in Acapulco, Mexico for three days and four nights. And it's then and there we believe that one of these missing queen ants flew aboard. Doctor, please give them your information, will you? Owners of the SS Viking reported that on hold number one, the hatch cover was off during the entire time of loading, even at night. The crew had shore leave every night, so only a skeleton crew remained on watch. It was quite possible for a queen ant to have flown onto that ship without being seen. And an open hold would appear most inviting as a place to lay her eggs and hatch out a nest. Shortly after the ship is sunk to kill the queen and her offspring, 40 tons of sugar is ripped out of a railroad car in Los Angeles. Thinking that the second queen is the culprit, Dr. Harold and his colleagues go there to investigate and learn that a man who was last seen flying model airplanes with his two sons died mysteriously and his children are missing. When was this car broken into? I told you, Friday night. The yard watchman claims he didn't see or hear a thing. What's so important you're going to work on Sunday? Where's the watchman now? City jail. We're holding him. Any boob knows you need trucks to carry away 40 tons of stuff. He said he didn't hear him. He's either a lion or he's deaf, and he ain't deaf. Let's go see him. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Hey. The least you could do after spoiling my day off is tell me how come a government cop is so interested in this deal. He's got a sweet tooth. This is the only job you've ever had? Yes, sir. I've been with the railroad 30 years and never blot against my record. Well, that yard cop seems to think you made a deal not to see that car broken into. Well, what kind of sense does that make? Is sugar a rare cargo? Is there a black market for it? Did you ever hear of a fence for hot sugar? If I was going to make a deal with crooks to steal something, it wouldn't be for 40 tons of sugar. And I swear I didn't hear a thing Friday night. I'll be right back. Bob, that woman just identified the body of her husband. I want you to see him right away. Okay. Never in my life have I ever had anything to do with crooks. I'm an honest man. Sure, Pop. Look, you can go home now. Take care of him, will you, Curtis? From a hospital room overlooking the Los Angeles River, Jensen, a half-coherent drunk, reports that he saw the family and the giant ants near an opening that leads to 700 miles of tunnels under Los Angeles. He sneaked out of here Saturday afternoon, back in at 5 this morning. You can talk to him, but I don't know what you expect to find out. He won't cooperate. Hey, Admiral, are we going to be drafted? No, sir, no. Good. Behave yourself, Harry. Yes, sir. This is the man. Mind your manners, Jensen. If he gives you any trouble, I'll be right outside the ward. He won't give us any trouble. Hello, Jensen, how are you? How do, gentlemen? You too, officer. Looking for recruits? No, not today, Mike. Jensen, you come here quite often, don't you? Yeah, I like it here. What have you been doing lately? 
Same as always, nothing. Oh, but I got some big deals on. Sure, sure, of course. Tell me something. You didn't see anything unusual yesterday or this morning, did you? No, nothing unusual. Same as always. No, well, they're gone now. I did see some little airplanes this morning. They didn't see big enough for them to get into. Big enough for who to get into? The ants. I'd like to get out of here, but I ain't gonna join the army to do it. You can't make me. There's laws, you know. Yeah, we know there's laws. Jensen, what kind of ants did you see? Oh, big ones. Ain't there now. Mostly at night I see them. Where? General, I make a deal with you. You make me a sergeant and charge the booze and not enlist. Make me a sergeant, charge the booze. Make me a sergeant and charge the booze. Jensen, exactly where do these ants show up? In the river. In the river. I seen it once when it had water in it. Now, when was that? Now, let me see. In the riverbed. Look at those big openings in the sides, like sewer outlets or something. Jensen, how long have you been seeing these things? Oh, a long time. How long have I been here? The doctor says he was minted first five months ago. Thanks, Mac. <laughs> Take me with you. On a list, I promise. Make me a sergeant. Give me the booze. Make me a sergeant. Give me the booze. Make me a sergeant. Give me the booze. Martial law is instated, and the Army is called in. We interrupt all radio and television programs for an indefinite period. Please keep your radio and television sets turned on. This is an emergency. I repeat, this is an emergency. By direction of the President of the United States, in full agreement with the Governor of the State of California and the Mayor of Los Angeles, the City of Los Angeles is in the interests of public safety, hereby proclaimed to be under martial law. Curfew is at 1800 hours. Any persons on the street or outside their quarters after 6 p.m. tonight will be subject to arrest by the military police. Now as for the reasons for this most drastic decision. A couple of months ago in the desert of New Mexico, gigantic ants were discovered. These ants are similar in appearance and characteristics to the household and garden, as you're familiar with. Except that they are mutations, ranging in size from 9 to 12 feet in length. The New Mexico colony was destroyed, but two queen ants escaped. One has been accounted for and destroyed. The other is not yet being found, but is now known to have established a nest somewhere in the storm drains beneath the streets of Los Angeles. It is not known how long this nest has been established or how many of these lethal monsters have hatched. Maybe a few, maybe thousands. If new queen ants have hatched and escaped this nest, other American cities, even now, may be in danger. These creatures are extremely dangerous. They have already killed a number of persons. Stay in your homes, I repeat. Stay in your homes. Your personal safety, the safety of the entire city, depends upon your full cooperation with the military authorities. Because they believe the two boys are in the tunnel with the ants, they cannot gas or burn out the creatures. Instead, armed with bazookas and flamethrowers, Ben, Bob, and Major Kibby ride jeeps into the tunnels with soldiers. After finding the boys alive in a storm drain, Ben gets them to safety and then is killed by an ant. Bob radios to the waiting Dr. Harold and Pat that the new queens have not left the egg chamber. 
He orders the chamber burned and the crisis is over. Bob later wonders if more mutations will be discovered. Dr. Harold responds that when man entered the atomic age, he opened a door to a new world and what eventually will be found in the new world, no one can project. General, where's Dr. Medford? He's coming. Thank you. Is this it, Doctor? There are new princesses, new queens. Yes, this is the egg chamber, the same as we found in New Mexico. Are we too late? Fortunately, we were in time. I'm certain no new queens have escaped from this nest. The job will be done when these are destroyed. Okay, burn them up. Pat, if these monsters got started as a result of the first atomic bomb in 1945, what about all the others that have been exploded since then? I don't know. Nobody knows, Robert. When man entered the atomic age, he opened a door into a new world. What we'll eventually find in that new world, nobody can predict. And that's the end of the movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. This movie was supposed to be in color and in 3D. Walt Disney screened this movie because he was interested in casting James Arnaz as Davy Crockett. He was so impressed by Fess Parker's performance as the crazy Texan pilot that he chose him for the part. James Whitmore wore lifts in his shoes to compensate for the height difference between himself and James Arnaz. Them was Warner Brothers' highest grossing film in 1954. There are several familiar faces in this movie. The army sergeant that's in the communication room talking to the, the lady. If you look closely, that's a 23-year-old Leonard Nimoy. The railway guard that was accused of stealing all that sugar. Well, if you grew up in the 70s, like I did, you'll remember him from the Hubba Bubba gum commercial. He's the Hubba Bubba gum man. The nurse psychiatrist that was with the little girl. Well, that's Ann Doran. She was Dr. Mary Royce in It, The Terror from Beyond Space. Then outside the room, the part where they had the conference and they had all the reporters, you probably recognize one of the reporters. That was Richard Deacon. He was Mel on the Dick Van Dyke show. Then there was the ambulance driver um, that took the little girl to the hospital. He was Patty Duke's father in the Patty Duke show. But for us Star Trek fans, he was Niels Barris from the Star Trek episode, The Troubles with Tribbles. And last, the, the old drunk man in the hospital that said he saw the ants. Well, that was Olin Howland. And if you watch The Blob, the 1958 version with Steve McQueen, he was the first victim of The Blob. You know, the old man had had it on his hand. And that's all I have for trivia. Here's my comments about the movie. I watched the 2002 DVD release from Warner Brothers. The picture and sound quality on this DVD are excellent. This is one of the best transfers I've ever seen. 
This is a great movie. I mean, the story's great. The direction was excellent. Everybody in the cast did a wonderful job, especially the little girl. This is one of the best science fiction movies of the 1950s. If you haven't seen this movie, you need to see it. You will not be disappointed. I'd recommend this movie to all science fiction fans. It's a must-see. I'll give this movie a 10 out of 10. And those are my comments about this movie. Before I wrap up this week's podcast, I'd like to thank Rico again for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Everyone take care. This is M5 signing off. Until next time, live long and prosper. Trips in Sunrise.